Very good morning and a blessed Sunday in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this is the first Sunday of the Ascension Day that happened on Tuesday. This is uh, the day where the church remembers that the Lord Jesus Christ ascended into heaven to be at the right hand of God the Father. Last week, uh, Pastor Shern preached on how uh, Absalom instigated rebellion against his father, King David. And we're going to continue to study this uh, very tense and devastating period of uh, David's life by looking at how Absalom plotted to have his father killed and how the um, circumstances, the situation worsened against David, humanly speaking, but yet how the Lord kept David from harm. Let's commit this time to the Lord. Father, we thank you that you are merciful and gracious God. We pray that you will teach us more and more of your ways and move us to always place our trust and faith in you in all circumstances and to, be, to, and to obey you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week we saw how Absalom used his uh, charisma, his con- considerable charm and political skills to win the hearts of the people who came to Jerusalem to seek justice from his father, the king. He would uh, provide an outward appearance of charm, uh, concern for those who had uh, pressing matters of concern with the king. He would intercept them and uh, talk to them and imply that um, if he were in charge, the people would get proper justice and the favor that they deserved. And Absalom was uh, patient as well. Uh, He did not rush into inciting immediate action of rebellion against King David. Instead, with cunning intelligence, he played a long game. He patiently, uh, he, he spent the years patiently winning the hearts of the people, and this happened over the, uh, a period of four years. The people whom Absalom ruled came from across the tribes of Israel. And so over the period of the four years, Absalom managed to build up a considerable network of support across the land, including presumably the the influential leaders of the tribes of Israel. And the cunning genius of Absalom was that he he gathered this support for himself without arousing the suspicion of David or his royal officials. Most likely, Absalom played the, the role of a dutiful son and positioned his glowing popularity as a benefit to King David's administration over the land since uh, he was David's son. And um, presumably, he was in a strong position to inherit the throne, as Pastor Shen pointed out last Sunday. After four years, Absalom chose an opportune time to launch his rebellion in Hebron. He sent word to his supporters across the land to be ready to sound the trumpet, which is a call to arms, and to proclaim him as king. At the same time, he invited 200 men from Jerusalem to Hebron as his guests on the pretext of fulfilling a vow uh, to worship God there. These men were likely to be top officials of um, Jerusalem. Um, They were not part of uh, um, Absalom's conspiracy, but um, Absalom probably chose them because they were uh, either key supporters or key officials of, of David's government so that they effectively became his hostages at the critical time when uh, Absalom launched his rebellion. 
And so by this masterful stroke, Absalom deprived David of the support from his key officials and supporters just at a time when he needed them most, at a critical time when the rebellion started. In a final masterstroke of the start of the rebellion, Absalom won over Ethitophel, Ethitophel fell, uh, David's counselor to his side. To get a sense of how formidable Ethitophel's um, wisdom and counsel were, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 23 tells us, now in those days the advice of Ahithophel gave was like the one who inquires of God. His, his wisdom was so uh, highly prized that it was as if you got words from God himself. And that was how both uh, Absalom, uh, David and Absalom took his uh, wisdom, how they valued his wisdom. At the launch of his rebellion, Absalom had clearly a considerable network of supporters throughout the land, as we saw. And on top of his cunning intelligence, now he had the powerful counsel and wisdom of Ephitophel while depriving his father, David, of core officials and supporters from Jerusalem. So momentum was building in Absalom's favor and things was getting worse. They were getting worse for David. When David heard of Absalom's rebellion, he knew immediately that he had to flee Jerusalem with his closest supporters and family that were still with him. One advantage working for David was that his most loyal soldiers, his bravest warriors, were still with him, something which uh, Absalom, for all his cunning, could not neutralize. Nonetheless, because of Absalom's widespread support from the other tribes, uh, David was in real jeopardy at this point. This was uh, the most devastating time of David's life. As you all know, this is not the first time he had to flee for his life as a hunted fugitive. As a young man, he fled the murderous jealousy of King Saul, and the Lord graciously protected him and ensured his ascension to the throne. And now that all, after all that he has accomplished for Israel, after all the, the battles that he had won for the nation against powerful enemies, David found himself having to run for his life again in his old age. The worst part of all was that it was his son out to get him. In 2 Samuel 16, verse 11, David says, My son, my own flesh and blood, is trying to kill me. How did it all go wrong for David? In this particular instance, the events were a result of God's judgment on David for his sin with Bathsheba and his murder of her husband Uriah. If you recall, we saw that in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, that the Lord declared the following, Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And this is the, what the Lord says, Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. But we also saw in 2 Samuel chapter 12 that the Lord forgave and restored David. The tension in David's current crisis is to what extent David would suffer loss in this spirit of crisis and would God remember his covenant promises to David and, and maintain his grace and forgiveness to David even through a period of pain and devastation. And so our big idea for today is God is sovereign, he's in absolute control in any situation. 
God's sovereignty, His absolute power, authority, and control is never weakened by human craftiness or conspiracy. Neither are His promises ever diminished by threatening circumstances. His purposes are never thwarted by evil. In times of devastating loss and threatening crisis, it's natural to wrestle with questions of God's sovereignty and whether our faith and prayers are helpless in the face of disorientating blows that an unexpected crisis can bring us. But God's word for us today helps us find our footing and confidence in God's sovereignty in the following ways. First, God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Second, God's judgment over human wisdom. And finally, God's deliverance and human faith. First, God's sovereignty and human responsibility. God's sovereignty does not remove human responsibility. One of the key struggles of our faith is to understand how God's sovereignty works in our everyday lives, especially in times when we face disasters and trouble. If God is all-powerful, why is there so much suffering? If God is sovereignly in control, why are things so out of control in this world? A related question is the struggle to understand God's predestination and human choice. Does God predetermine every possible outcome and ordain every choice made by people? This is, of course, especially pressing in terms of salvation. Are we saved by God's predestination while others also lost by God's predestination? That means God chose beforehand those who will be saved and those who will be lost. Now, these questions have been debated, um, deb you know, pondered upon, wrestled over over a long time. Uh, even Scripture itself, we see Job wrestling with understanding how God works out his justice and purposes. Uh, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans addresses questions on why did Israel fall away and how they would be restored um, in, in God's timing and plan. So we won't certainly uh, resolve every debate and answer every question today or anytime soon. But what we do have is the weakness of God's word and the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. While sincere Christians can honestly disagree from both sides of the debate, we must not forget the most important thing that we do have. We need to let God speak for himself through his word and the weakness of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. The word of the Lord makes clear that God is sovereign in an absolute sense. He's above time and space. He stands above creation. We could, for example, see God's response to Job from Job chapter 38 to 41, uh, here in Isaiah chapter 46 and in Isaiah chapter 55, just to give you a sampling. Uh, his sovereign wisdom and power are above and beyond human understanding. At the same time, God gives people the ability to choose, the ability to decide whether or not to obey Him in faith or go their own way. In Genesis, 
Adam and Eve are given to command in the garden precisely because they were designed with the ability to choose. The history of Israel in the Old Testament is full of situations, incidences where God appeals to his people to choose to obey him, to come back to him, to be restored, and yet Israel repeatedly went astray. So we can't say that God kind of chose for them to disobey. He, he appealed to them on numerous occasions. So in this sense, God does not override human will and free choice. But because he is sovereign, human choices cannot ultimately stop God's redemptive plan for the world through his son. The Bible makes it clear that God does have a predetermined future for his chosen redeemed people. And God is sovereignly at work to bring all things to fulfill his purpose and to work out all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. But at the same time, people will be held responsible for the choices they make. And where God's sovereign will and control meets human choice and free will is, of course, a deep mystery. But this is how God designed it to be, and both are affirmed in Scripture. And having a choice means that we are held responsible for the choices we make, and that we and others around us are subject to the consequences of those choices. Before Israel went into the, the Promised Land, just before that, uh, Moses kind of reiterated the law and commands um, to the people, including God's promises of blessing for obedience and warnings of judgment for disobedience. And this is what um, Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, the people, that have, I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. God's people are clearly given a choice whether to obey God or to turn from Him. But Moses also makes it clear in the book of Deuteronomy that God is still sovereign above human choice in bringing judgment but yet redeeming and restoring His people. Now, there are two implications. Why, why do we go through all that? There are two implications to highlight for our reflection today based on our passage for today. First is when we live in faith and obedience, God works out his plans and purposes in us and through us, despite whatever the challenges or the circumstances. His restoration and forgiveness sustains us even through the consequences of sin. The power of God's redemptive grace ultimately overcomes the consequences of sin for those who repent and come back to him. Their freedom is paradoxically found in their submission and surrender to God, that they will inherit salvation and everlasting life that God has prepared beforehand for those who believe. And so for them, in all things, God actively works for the good. Second, those who exercise their will to sin persistently without repenting, 
no matter how talented or wise or powerful they are, they will eventually be caught up in God's sovereign will to bring all sin to final judgment. For them, their plans and actions will be used by God to bring out the ultimate good for the redeemed and the ultimate judgment for the wicked. So whatever they do, no matter how powerful they might seem, their very rebellion will still be used by God for his ultimate purposes for salvation and judgment. As Proverbs 16 verse 4 says, the, the Lord works out the Lord works out everything to its proper end, everything. Even the wicked for a day of disaster. And in Absalom's rebellion, we see how the Lord works out everything for David's deliverance and for Absalom's downfall. God's sovereignty ensured that even though David faced the consequences of his sin, he will eventually be saved because he repented. But God's sovereignty also ensured that Absalom will be held responsible for his chosen path of unrepented sin and rebellion. So our first, our first takeaway then is that God's sovereignty ensures his purposes will be accomplished, but that everyone will be held accountable for the choices they make, whether the choices will make in either obedient faith or persistent disobedience and unbelief. Now, we, we have all made choices that we regret. We have made choices in sin that we regret. But God has made the most important choice for us that we will ever face, the choice regarding His Son, Jesus Christ. That one choice that one decision in our lives is able to redeem all the choices that we have made in sin against God. And from that one decision, God's Spirit worked in us so that our choices progressively come in line with God's purposes for us in Christ. Just also a quick mention that... Um, God's sovereignty also works with the hearts of faithful believers in prayer and in, in, in faithful service. It's not God is sovereign so we don't have to pray, you know, we don't have to do anything in response to faith. God sovereignly also works uh, you know, with the prayers of His people. Yeah? Second, God's, judge, God's judgment over human wisdom. There's no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. Proverbs 21.30 Absalom had the wealth of personal charisma, charm and intelligence. But he used all of that to set himself on the path of sin and rebellion. In previous sermons, Pastor Shen has pointed out that David's failure to bring justice for Absalom's sister Tamar possibly planted the seeds of resentment and bitterness leading to... Um, of course, the direct cause, it led to the murder of Amon, his brother, and eventually rebellion against his father. Uh, so it's fair to say that Absalom had a valid grievance against his father. 
but he chose to pursue a path to address his grievance. He took matters into his own hands without reference to God. In the scripture text that we have, Absalom only ever mentioned God as a pretext for his conspiracy and plans. There's no mention of him seeking or wrestling with God for what he is facing. In, rebel, in rebelling against his father, Absalom went against the commandment to honor one's father or mother and mother. And in raising his hand against the king, he went, he went up against the Lord's anointed as king, the Lord's anointed, effectively the Lord himself. Similarly, Ethitophel, I'm not going to go through the scripture, but um, we, we can surmise that Ethitophel uh, was actually Bathsheba's grandfather. And, um, it's, it's, it's possible, it's not explicit in the text, it's possible that Ethitophel um, kind of learned about the circumstances of um, David's relationship with Bathsheba and what he did to Uriah, it's, it's possible. And that could be the seed of um, his uh, betrayal of King David. And so uh, he had a valid grievance as well. But then he used his powers of intellect and wisdom on a path of conspiracy against the king as the Lord's anointed as well. In David's earlier life, when he was fleeing from, as a young man fleeing from King Saul, he was, that time, the Lord already anointed, anointed him to be king. But King Saul had this murderous rage and he pursued to kill young David. And David had an opportunity to kill uh, King Saul, but he refused, right? He, uh, he, he was even uh, remorseful for even cutting uh, each of uh, King Saul's robe. And at, uh, if you recall that passage, uh, he, he, he was convicted that how can I even think about hurting the Lord's anointed? Now, he had valid grievance against King Saul. He was, it's, it could be, self, I mean, he could have justified on the grounds of self-defense and the fact that he is the anointed king. But uh, he refused to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed uh, King Saul at that time. And uh, back to Athetophel, he, he is a man of incisive wisdom, and in this particular instance, he, he, he gave Absalom and Absalom's leaders a potent winning strategy against David. David was fleeing for his life, disorientated by the suddenness and trauma of Absalom's rebellion, and lightly bogged down with non-combatants, members of his household who were not soldiers. David did have uh, some of his bravest, most experienced soldiers with him, but they, like him, were possibly in a state of disorientation and disarray. And Ahithophel's plan was brilliant in that it called for Absalom to assemble a relatively small force of select warriors. They still likely outnumbered David's forces, but they were small enough to be quickly assembled and ready for the pursuit of David that very night when Absalom secured Jerusalem. The rapid pursuit of David's forces will greatly increase the chance of catching them unprepared, exhausted, and in a state of disarray, and, and to attack with violent ferocity to create terror and panic. 
He further advised a very shrewd tactic of limiting the mission to killing David. He, he advised, we're not going to display it here, but he advised, once you kill David, stop and then bring the people back, reconcile with them. So once David was killed, the operation was over, the rest of the people with David would be granted safety, clemency, reconciliation, return to Jerusalem. So this would have prevented the conflict from devolving into a long-drawn, costly guerrilla warfare in the wilderness. This was a truly brilliant plan. For a man with the cunning intelligence of Absalom, this would have been something that he would, could have and would have taken immediately. But probably he felt some doubt that prompted him to get a second opinion from Hushai, David's friend and counsellor, whom David plants as a spy in Absalom's camp. Hushai pretended to come over to Absalom, but was secretly loyal to David. On his part, Hushai gave a very credible counter-proposal, which involves playing on Absalom's doubts and insecurity around his father's outstanding military leadership and the experience of his soldiers. In other words, David was a proven military commander with an unbroken winning track record. In contrast, Absalom had no real battlefield experience of command. So Hushai's counter-proposal had the benefit of giving Absalom the comfort of bringing overwhelming numbers of warriors in a major, major military campaign against David's forces. Absalom would have the comfort of using sheer numbers to compensate for his lack of battlefield experience and confidence. But by choosing to raise a vast army, this plan would have given David breathing space to rest, to recover, very importantly, to choose and prepare the ground on which to fight. Absalom would have lost the element of speed, surprise, and the intense focus attack of Ahithophel's original plan. Nonetheless, Absalom and his leaders chose to go with Hushai's counter-proposal. They chose this option, it was their free will, but it was the Lord's hand behind the scenes. As 2 Samuel 7.14 tells us, for the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. Absalom chose to get a second opinion, and he went for that second opinion, but it was God who orchestrated the circumstances in which Absalom made the fatal choice to follow Hushai's counterproposal. It was God's sovereign judgment against human wisdom. When Athetophel heard that his plan was rejected, he immediately knew it was all lost. It was lost for him, it was lost for Absalom. He didn't need to wait for the outcome of the actual battle. He went home and took his life. His life was full of wisdom, but when he chose the path of rebellion, all the wisdom that he had was not able to save him. Our second takeaway is that God can sovereignly frustrate the plans of the wicked or turn around such plans 
to fulfill his purpose in sin state. But as we saw earlier, it's, it's also God's sovereignty in meeting the prayers and the intercession of his people. And those of you who uh, attended the prayer intensive training would, would know, right, that the role of, of God's people to pray and intercede for the nation, for example. Third, God's deliverance and human faith. We come now to David. He's on the run for his life from his very own son. Now, he indicates some awareness that he could be under God's judgment, you know, from God's pronouncement of judgment through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 12, we saw earlier. In 2 Samuel 15, 26, David says to Zadok, the priest, David, David says of God, But if he, meaning God, says, I'm, I'm not pleased with you, then I am ready. I, David, am ready. Let, him, let God do to me uh, whatever seems good to him. So here, David confesses that God has a right to judge him. But yet, David maintains his hope in God's everlasting mercies, that God's heart is gracious and compassionate to those who turn in repentance to him. And we see this in one verse earlier, Second. Uh, Samuel 15, 25, um, that uh, Zadok, the priest, brought the Ark of the Covenant to David, uh, perhaps as a, a symbol of God's presence with David. Uh, but David instructs Zadok to return the, the Ark to, to the temple. And then uh, the king said to Zadok, take the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. Throughout the crisis and escape from Absalom, we see glimpses of David's faith to turn to the Lord in his most desperate hour. When told that Ahithophel had, had joined Absalom, uh, David prays this way, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. And God did answer David's prayer because not long after that, Hushai, his close friend and counselor, turns up who David then uh, you know, sends back as a spy uh, to Absalom's camp. And as we saw earlier, he, he was instrumental in undermining uh, Ahithophel's uh, brilliant and potentially devastating strategy to ruin and kill David. We also get a glimpse of how David prayed and worshipped God during this time of crisis uh, in Psalms chapter 3, uh, which is attributable attributed to David when he fled from Absalom. In Psalm chapter 3, verse 2, David says this, Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. In that moment of crisis to human reasoning, David's situation was completely hopeless. It was only a matter of time, people said, when Absalom's net were closed in around him. But David renews his strength in the Lord and declares in faith, But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. For David, it didn't matter how dire or hopeless the situation was. All that mattered was what his faith told him. The Lord was a shield that wraps round him. God is the one who lifts up his head, bowed down low by the weight of the crisis he faced. 
And God was a shield to David and all with him during the crisis. God was working out his deliverance for David. At the start of the crisis, Absalom had built up many advantages for himself, but God was progressively working to undermine his strength, while at the same time, God was working to build up advantages in David's favor. In other words, because of God's sovereign hand, the momentum that had built up so much in Absalom's favor due to human wisdom and craftiness was now progressively and irreversibly shifting to David's favor. We see, this, we see this in how God provided David with important and loyal supporters like the priests, like Hushai, and arranging for others to bring food and supplies to David while he was on the run. In the last part of Second uh, Samuel chapter 17, David has now escaped the immediate danger of being entrapped by Absalom. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah too small, but uh, the, the center blue line is the River Jordan. Jerusalem is left to the left of that blue line. And so when Absalom came, uh, David, the red, thin red line that you see there, he had to flee towards Jordan, that center blue line. If ever Absalom was to defeat David, was before that blue line, before Jordan, before he crossed the river, where Ahithophel's plan, as we saw earlier, was to gather up a rapid reaction force, so to speak, and then attack David while he was still resting and exhausted to the left of that blue line before he crossed the Jordan. But because of Hushai's counterproposal, Absalom needed time to raise up the forces of Israel. David was able to cross uh, that blue line, Jordan, into the right side of the screen, upwards toward that circled city. You can't read the name, but it's uh, Mehanaim. That's a walled city. So it was a strong, like a, like a fortress, so to speak. So it, that was a strong base for David um, to, to rest, to recover, uh, to stage um, his defense, etc. So Absalom has missed his opportunity, David, once he crossed the Jordan, he escaped the immediate danger. But meanwhile, of course, Absalom was getting a massive, massive army across the tribes, and they also eventually crossed uh, the Jordan and, um, of course, tried to surround David. But now David is working from a secure base, as I was saying. Um, to borrow imagery from Psalms 23, at this stage, uh, God had brought David through the valley of the shadow of death, so to speak, because that initial few days was so critical. It was death was stalking David, but uh, he and his uh, uh, family, household soldiers, managed to escape. And when David first came to this city, Mehanaim, his allies uh, brought him the abundance of food supplies. We see this towards the end of uh, chapter 17, where his allies brought him bedding, bowls, articles of pottery. They also brought him wheat, barley, food, roasted grain, beans, lentils, honey, curds, sheep, cheese from cow's milk for David and his people to eat. Abundance of uh, food supplies. Again, the imagery from Psalm 23 is striking. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. David was being surrounded by a massive army raised by Absalom to destroy him. 
But what does God do here? God prepares a feast table for David in the presence of his enemies. Not in the absence of his enemies, you understand, but in the presence of his gathering enemies. The enemies were gathering in strength around David, but here the Lord is supplying David with strength, with restoration, with refreshment. I praise God there are times when the Lord's hand will ensure that we have the absence of spiritual enemies or opposition in our Christian context. And the day would come when there will be permanent absence of the enemies, our enemies of sin and death. But there will be seasons when the Lord will prepare a feast table of His goodness and provision in the presence of our enemies, spiritual opposition and challenges of life. David will still face devastating and grievous loss ahead in the battle to come. But the Lord's covenant promises to David will be upheld and his goodness and mercies will continue to follow David all the days of his life. The Lord for David and for us is the God of deliverance. He's a God of provisions and breakthroughs in the face of adversities and crisis. We can have faith and trust in the faithful, trustworthy God whom we serve and worship. So I'd like uh, to pray for us now. I'd like you to uh, come into the Lord's presence. And I'd like to ask you about the one key choice that we all face what do we do with the person and the Lordship of Christ? Do we make the choice to be in faith or to wait or to turn our backs? The word of the Lord says, now, this day, is the day of salvation. God will not um, override your free choice, but He does welcome you. His Spirit works in your heart to bring you to the place of faith and surrender. I also want to pray for us when we are facing with that time of trial and adversities, that we will trust in the sovereign hand of the Lord, that your prayers and your faith are not in vain. Let's come before the Lord. Father, we bow before your majesty. We surrender ourselves in the presence of your awesome, sovereign presence. Father, you are above all things. You are above space and time. By your grace and redemptive power, you can redeem us from all the sins and the mistakes, the wrong choices that we have made in life, and to bring us to new life, a new destiny, a new future in Christ Jesus. And so right now we pray that your spirit will move in all our hearts, that those of us who have made that choice to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that your spirit will affirm that choice made 
by the outpouring of your spirit that we will not go to the left or nor to the right, but we will stay the course to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ in every way, every aspect of our lives. Father, today, in this moment, for those of us who have not come to make that choice to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, would you not remind us that this hour, this moment is the day of salvation. You freely offer salvation and forgiveness to all. No matter what choices that we have done in the past, this moment is a moment of decision that will enable us to have new life in Christ. And Father, I pray for the hearts that are opening up to you right now that your spirit, your grace will enable us to say yes to the Lord Jesus Christ. To say, yes, Lord, I surrender my life to you. I give you my will. I ask your forgiveness in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray in the face of the challenges, the trials, the adversity, the uncertainties that we face. Father, there are many times when we feel helpless, we wrestle with our faith and our prayers. And Lord, Many today now are bringing those struggles before you. I pray, Lord, that they will know your awesome presence. They will be assured of your sovereignty. You are the God of our breakthroughs. You, go, you are the God of our salvation. You are the God of our deliverance. No one who puts their hope in you will ever be ashamed, will not be put to shame. And so, Lord, as you pour out your Spirit on our hearts, even as we surrender our lives, our adversities, our loved ones, those whom we are praying for, Lord, would you not act in your great mercy and compassion to bring salvation, to bring deliverance, to bring healing, to bring a breakthrough in the circumstances and challenges that we are facing so that we will be able to say with David, you, O Lord, are a shield about us. You are our glory. When our head is bowed down with adversity and depression and grief and loss, you, Lord, are the one who lifts up our heads with your grace and mercy. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, may the Lord smile on you. May he make his grace, his gracious face to shine upon you. May his favor and his blessing rest upon you and all your family and loved ones in Christ Jesus. Amen.